Well, thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and if you're interested in where innovative ideas meet practical realities in food production, you've come to the right place. Before we get started, though, I'd like to give a quick shout out to two new members of the FOA community, Lars Penquin and Michelle Rossman. Thank you both very much for joining the community and supporting this show. So if you're listening and gaining value from this podcast on a regular basis and you can spare the cost of a fancy coffee each month, I encourage you to join us over at patreon.com forward slash agriculture. As many of you already know, I've made more of an effort this year than ever to try to explore ag tech outside of the United States where I live. We've had guests on from Australia, India, Ireland, Canada, and the UK, just to name a few. And we've got upcoming episodes with guests from Germany and Kenya. Today, we explore an international ag tech powerhouse in Brazil. And we have on the show the perfect guest to talk about the developing ag tech ecosystem in the country, Francisco Hardim. Francisco is the founding partner at SP Ventures, which invests across multiple industries. But as you're about to hear, he has particular expertise in ag tech. A year ago, we featured the founder of one of their portfolio companies, Mariana Vasconcelos from AgroSmart, on episode 179 of this podcast. In fact, you'll hear us reference Mariana in this episode, so be sure to check that one out after you listen to this one if you haven't already. Again, that's episode 179 with uh, Mariana Vasconcelos from AgroSmart. Really interesting insights here comparing a country like Brazil to others like the U.S. and how startups can gain advantages over large established players in agriculture and some misconceptions about farmer customers in countries like Brazil. My plan initially was to cut this interview down to about 35 minutes and add a startup spotlight like I have been doing in recent episodes, but I just I couldn't do it here today. It was just too good to cut any more out of. So you'll hear that startup spotlight, which is another SP Ventures portfolio company, Leaf, on an upcoming episode. But here's my conversation with Francisco Hardim, and make sure you stick around all the way to the end of this episode for some really practical advice for you entrepreneurs out there. Francisco has been investing with SP Ventures for over 13 years now and focuses on Brazilian startups. I'm going to drop you into the conversation, though, when he's describing where he sees ag tech startups and venture capital fitting into the broader agricultural ecosystem. Enjoy. First of all, we need to get there earlier or before significantly the big companies get there, right? So, I mean, we have to build these businesses either to sell it to the big companies or to disrupt the big companies. So, in order to do this, we're always looking very carefully to what the big companies, the current market leaders in these segments are doing, right? So, when we're looking to the big companies in agriculture, the big ag, as they're called in in most of the world, One thing was clear. These guys were going through some major issues, let's say. We saw Bayer buying Monsanto. We bought ChemChina buying Adama and then buying Syngenta. We saw the trio Dow, DuPont, and Pioneer joining up and becoming creative. So we saw an industry that was huge, several leading players becoming even more concentrated. The message that we got out of this, probably the most consolidating sector at the time in terms of big industries in the world, the message that we got was that they were not comfortable and they were not confident that they would continue to beat earnings reports and earnings estimates and delivering the kind of productivity and the leap that agriculture demanded with their existing 
technology platforms. So with basically the, the, the technology platform that led the third agricultural revolution, which was uh, agrochemical technology and the biotech GMO technology, you know, uh, Roundup Ready and these things. So there was clearly an exhaustion of the previous uh, model. And, you know, as we saw innovation, leave large companies and go to smaller companies and startups in most of the other sectors, we started to see what these guys were looking at and, and starting to see what kind of technologies were going to power the next, like I said, the fourth agricultural revolution. And at the same time, we saw these big guys starting to buy and pay top dollars for very different companies, all of them in very different sectors than they were in. This is when Monsanto paid a billion dollars for Climate Corp in, in the U.S., and then Grant and then Corteva paid $300 million or almost that for granular uh, in the US and other software companies, so data science companies, uh, and so on. And we saw several of these. So we saw that not only these guys' traditional business models had reached an exhaustion, and that's why they were consolidating to be able to have cost reductions and gains of scale, but they also started to pay very high top dollar for new technologies. And new these new technologies were in these sectors. They were in digital, they were in CRISPR, biotech. Uh, so we saw where these guys were seeing the future of agriculture. And that's where we saw that we had a major opportunity. We can build best-in-class new ag tech companies in what is the most exciting geography in the world. Brazil has had 4% productivity growth yearly over the last 40 years in agriculture. This is pretty unique anywhere in the world. And we have the most space to grow in new farmland and in existing productivity. So we talked about a region that had a very different agriculture. We're tropical. So what works in Tel Aviv, what works in Illinois doesn't necessarily work here. We have a huge and robust research center and community for tropical agriculture. We have a large scaled market and we have a growth market. So all these ingredients in the in the stew and we saw and we said, wow, this is a big opportunity. Yeah. Talk about, you know, kind of the exits, how that's sort of played out, because, you know, we have had climate, which you mentioned. We've had granular, which you mentioned. We've had Blue River going to John Deere. There have been some exciting, you know, acquisitions happen over time, but it seems like they're somewhat few and far between. Has it happened slower than you expected? And what are your thoughts on that? I don't know if it's slower than I expected, we feel that the, the cycle of exits are still getting started, right? I think that's going to be a lot. And I mean, I, I don't really know how it's going to play out in North America and, and in Israel, although we see a lot of exciting companies in these ecosystems, companies that are raising additional capital, they're delivering uh, top technology that has been used, engaged, and delivering results. So we do think there's going to be a lot of exits down the line with those vintages. But when we talk about Latin America and emerging markets, and, and I guess the same parallel can be used if you're talking about Southeast Asia or China or India or in decades to come in what's going to be become a very exciting entrepreneurial hotspot, which is in Africa, then you really have to look with a very different lens. When we look at the lens of, of ag tech in, in Latin America, what we see is we have a leapfrog of digital technologies coming in, uh, going straight mobile, but at the same time, uh, a lot of drone and drone as a service, a lot of satellite data usage, a lot of cloud computing usage. So our farmers didn't, in many cases, go from uh, managing their farms with a notebook, then to an Excel, then to a client server software, and now to a cloud. Many of them are going either from the Excel directly to a very sophisticated cloud uh, farmer management system platform, similar to what Granular delivers, or they're going directly from a notebook, managing their farms from a notebook, directly to a cloud-based farm management system. And these are guys that are managing two, three, four thousand hectare farms, right? And more uh, in some cases. 
So we're seeing a lot of leapfrogging. Second, there's not a, a, an established competitive and satisfactory financial services industry for agribusiness in the region, which consumes a lot of working capital and a lot of CAPEX investment uh, funding. So what we see is this starts to blur and become uh, intertwined into one industry. You start having ag tech solutions fixing specific pain points in the agribusiness value chain in the region at the same time that they become suppliers of data originators of uh, customers and premium partners in potential financial services industry. So we start to see it intersecting with a fintech industry for ag and supporting technology for established banks as they become more digital in the ag space. Yeah. And we saw some of that with Mariana on the show of AgroSmart. Can you talk about some other of your portfolio companies maybe that that you're excited about in Brazil to kind of set the stage for those uh, those of us who may be listening from outside of the country? Of course. So I'll give you an example. I mean, first, we can we can look at, at what happened in the U.S. of Granular and Corteva as we, we started the acquisition, right, the, the, the mention. Well, for example, we, we are investors in a company called Aegro. That's A-E-G-R-O. It's the leading FMS farm management system platform here in Brazil, already probably four or five times larger than the second one. They are, in terms of hectares uh, and, and, and farmers, larger already than what uh, Granular was when they did their exit from the numbers that we... We received, so it's it's already you know a case already that potential, growing at eight nine percent a month, and these guys are now looking at saying, okay, I have you know well more than a thousand paying customers, I have fantastic SaaS KPIs usage, I'm taking farmers that literally had no idea if they were making money or losing money and becoming very proficient. Because when you talk about an FMS revolution, you're talking about a managerial revolution in farming. So, you know, becoming much more productive, making much more real-time informed decisions in what is a very complex business in farming. And now what they're brainstorming, experimenting with several different partners from distributors, financial services, and industries is how can I leverage this data and this access that I have to farmers using, of course, farmer data with their consent, how can I transform that into value add, be it to get these guys better insurance, better credit, more access to new technologies and products than they used to, and consequently, of course, increasing the value, the strategic value of having the largest FMS platform in Latin America and hopefully one of the largest FMS partners in the world very soon. So this is, is, is an example. We have another company in the portfolio called Bart Digital. Latin America and, and Brazil and Argentina specifically, we have a multi-hundred billion dollar industry in what we call barter. So since there's no credit available for farmers, farmers finance their operations in many cases by receiving seeds, chemicals, and other inputs necessary, fertilizers, in exchange for future deliver of soybean. So basically, the industries, in order to sell and push their products, they end up financing the farmers and carrying the farmer risk on their balance sheet which means, you know, uh, weather and all these things and, and, and pest risks and all these things. This always used to be paper done. It always used to be registered in notaries. It took months to do one of these issuings, uh, to issue a, a debt title in order to be able to get access to fertilizers, chemicals, etc. What we notice is that with blockchain technology, with cloud digital technology, with uh, digital certification and signatures, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to issue one of these debts in a matter of hours involving an industry, involving uh, the notaries, involving the farmer and eventual other law firms that need 
needed to be assigning. So we invested in a company that digitalizes 100% of that process. And um, they were, you know, fighting all these special interests that resisted heavily, law firms and notaries and all these things. And we were going up an uphill battle. And then when COVID came around and all these guys had to close down and had to go digital, this company literally exploded. They're doing uh, uh, these digitalization of uh, barter transactions for BASF. They're doing a POC, a proof of concept of Bungi. They're doing it with several large distributors here in Brazil. And what we're seeing is a huge aspect of that used to be slow, expensive, and, and consume a lot of energy time and leave everybody exposed to fraud and to volatilities and exchange rates. Now, all of a sudden, this is becoming 100% digital. And when it becomes digital, that means it becomes transparent. When it becomes transparent, it becomes easier to price the risk of the security that is being generated by that barter transaction. Consequently, we can start to partner up with stock exchanges to be able to issue those titles directly to investors and get retail and wholesale institutional investors access to this kind of farmer risk instead of being exclusively in the hands of industries and uh, distributors who, who probably it was not their core business and they did it mostly to sell their products and technologies, but also... Uh, as they're doing it and not being very efficient, they would charge farmers much higher interest rates. So, I mean, th th these are two examples of how we're leveraging technology, new digital technology, to be able to make less friction, less cost for farmers to be able to empower themselves through the use of their data and access more sophisticated financial services products. And what's the reception on the part of the farmer? I mean, both of those sound like really useful solutions that actually, you know, help them. But I know here in the U.S., even though there's some great technology, there's still a lot of skepticism or fatigue on the part of the farmer when it comes to ag tech. You know, they just have seen so much sort of come and go that they're kind of roll their eyes about any new ag tech that might come along. And uh, is it the same in South America or are you seeing any of that? Yeah, so in, in, in South America, in, in Brazil and Argentina specifically, it's it's really good to have this discussion now because we used to have this discussion with uh, farmers, co-ops, executives of the leading input industries in the world over here and, and all these guys. And it's almost a, a, a textbook a case of something like Moore's Crossing the Chasm book or uh, Clayton Christensen's uh, Innovator Dilemma. Or, you know, it's, it's very simple because first you have the guys who deny it then who say, well, you guys don't know anything about farmers. Farmers only buy technology that they, you know, they can sit on the tractor. And uh, if they go to a fair 500 kilometers away and spend four days or if you go to their farm, you know, you drive 600 kilometers after, you know, reaching a, an airport in the middle of nowhere, then you have to have coffee with him, look in the eye and show him the brochure. That's the only way farmers buy technology. And if you don't do that, you're never going to sell technology. Well, you know, BS, all the other sectors changed. And to think that farmers uh, enjoy leaving their families behind, driving 600 kilometers away to spend three, four days in a fair which is in a crowded city because of the fair and there are no more uh, hotel spots and they're paying expensive. And, and to think that they, they enjoy doing this and that, you know, this is the way business is done. So it's always going to be done is absolute ignorance in terms of understanding what's happening in terms of tech disruption. And it's not having a look over what happened over the S and P 500 top 10, top 20, top 30 companies and how they were disrupted over the, the last few decades. Uh, so, I mean, we bet against this. We bet that this was not the, going to be the case with farmers and that they were going to adopt. Now, obviously, what happens when you start to launch new technologies? 
The only people that adopted are very visionaries and techies, the guys who are always trying new things. The technologies are still not mature. They're expensive. The UX is horrible. Connectivity was depressing. So the value proposition that was delivered, the price, the, the farmers that were you know eligible to try it were obviously uh, niche. So this is how it started. But this is how it starts everywhere, right? In any new technology, any new disruption, uh, internet was like this in the early 90s and, and you know, so on, so on, so on. Well, what we've noticed is over the past three years, the ag tech companies started to deliver much richer value propositions, less friction, more UX, better cost benefit. They started to engage and farmers started to become more digitally oriented and alphabetized. Connectivity started to spread. So the necessary infrastructure, which is connectivity and smartphone penetration started to really enter and access the farming land. So all these things started to permit that you could really build truly lasting experiences and exponential businesses to farmlands in the digital realm. Now, we already had companies before COVID that uh, without having one field sales professional, all in inside sales and digital marketing, were selling uh, 10, 12% monthly growth to farmers across the country from Rio Grande do Sul all the way to Belém, Pará, without having anybody visiting farms. So we were already breaking those paradigms. Now, what happened, Tim, after COVID is a completely reversal of fortunes. So now the farmers, you know, all the fairs where the, the big multinational industry guys used to spend millions of dollars in trade marketing, in stands, in their on-site location, in taking guys to dinner, all of this went to rubble. That We were not going to have any fairs, right? Now they have 200 field sales guys just for sugarcane. Well, the farmer doesn't want to receive these guys because you know these guys are going to bring diseases. So now what we're seeing is the multinationals are having to compete with the ag tech companies in the same battle style, which is telephone, inside sales, scripts, all the KPIs, which startups are fantastically competitive and, and very efficient on. And now what we're seeing is this revolution has reached ag uh, full blown. It was already happening, but it was still, you know, as exponential technologies, when they're growing on top of a low base, they don't really seem to bother anybody. But it was, it was already happening. It was going to bother a lot of people in the coming years. COVID accelerated this process. So now what we're seeing is it's no longer an issue. I think nobody else doubts that when you look at agriculture in Latin America right now, and again, focusing in, zero in on Brazil and Argentina, every single new exciting technology, whether it's satellite, whether it's cloud, whether it's mobile, whether it's IoT, whether it's blockchain, whether it's the intersection of technology with new and exciting business models, financial engineering, et cetera, uh, marketplaces, these are all primarily reaching farmers through small companies. Clearly, the vector of new innovation in agribusiness in the region is no longer the, the monopoly or even the, the primary responsibility of big companies. Now it's small companies. And let's kind of go down that road a little bit more because that's really interesting what you said about, you know, the COVID kind of levels the playing field where you can have 200 salespeople, but if they can't go visit the farmer, it doesn't matter, right? Uh, but on the flip side, once the transaction happens, so a farmer does try out a new technology, then you got to support them. And that's where the these startups have traditionally had a harder time or been at a disadvantage just because they've got, you know, less infrastructure for support. So how's that playing out? Yeah. So, uh, and, and I think that that was another turning point. This was increasing, uh, improving, Tim. You know, we saw NPS levels uh, improving across the board in our portfolio companies. We saw adoption, engagement, everything was increasing. What happened with COVID, and which was a completely disruptive event, 
was that farmers realized that they needed to have much better internet to be able to run their businesses because now they were consuming entertainment, they were consuming technology, they were consuming uh, managerial day-to-day operations, purchasing procurement operations, 100% based on their broadband and their connectivity. So what they, they, they really invested heavily over the past three months in making sure they had top-notch connectivity in their internet and the pressure became much louder. So what we saw is our companies have been gearing to be able to deliver this kind of high NPS service, this really unique customer experience through internet, through digital, because we saw that we were never going to compete with Bayer, with, with Corteva, with Syngenta, with these guys in terms of field sales and in terms of trade marketing, in terms of having agronomists on the farm. This was unthinkable. So we followed a completely different strategy. And now what we're seeing is this strategy, which was already winning over, but on a slower pace, it completely overtook. And um, we think that all the large companies are now having to adapt radically to having these low-touch customer engagement strategies, be it in origination or be it in uh, customer support, upselling, cross-selling, all these different languages. And now with COVID, I think this this has really accelerated, but it was already happening. Huh? I mean, we were looking at the KPIs of our companies last year and we were all very happy. This year, it was just a two-blown, right? Uh, when we looked at the COVID in March, we prepared for the worst. So we thought we we're going to lose revenue and actually revenues went up. And, and, and it wasn't the benefit of just one company like AgroSmart. It was across the board. And all of this is, I think, really interesting. We haven't talked about this on the show, so I think it's this is great about how what's happening in 2020 is sort of level the playing field for a lot of startups. But it, it does assume, though, that the startups you're talking about, which I which I would guess the ones in your portfolio are, uh, but are, are solving a real problem. And you, you mentioned, you know, sort of crossing the chasm, that book earlier. And I don't know, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this, but it seems to me, and I, I don't know other industries very well at all, but it seems like the chasm in agriculture is as wide or wider than anywhere else. You've got a group of very independent customers in farmers, a lot of times they uh, either don't follow or even resent a little bit the sort of early adopter types. And so they're not fast followers in general. And maybe maybe that's too much of a gross generalization of them. But uh, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, is the chasm the chasm no matter what industry you're in? I know you've worked in other industries or uh, how is that unique tag? Yeah. So, I mean, I think in each industry has its particularities, but there's one key thing in ag that was missing until now for it to truly enter, let's say, exponential speed and all these things, uh, which was infrastructure. So, I mean, we, we needed to have connectivity. We needed to have smartphone penetration. Uh, if you don't have these building blocks, these basic infrastructure, there's no way that you can build truly exponential businesses. I mean, all the other platform technologies came or all the other last mile application technologies comes once you have built out the infrastructure. And, and the infrastructure was not there and it's been built over the past few years and it's improving on a regular basis. So I think that that was one key thing that you needed to bring the distances between uh, the size of the chasms, right? Uh, getting some of the, the vocab over there from the, from the book uh, to shorten up the, the chasm. So that was critical one. The second thing, which is, for us very, very important is we look at the farmer as a very specific individual. So, I mean, he runs a manufacturing operation that has a huge shortfall in working capital, you know, seven, eight, nine, 11 months. He is exposed to extreme volatility in terms of a commodity price and exchange rate in our, in our region. And he runs this extremely 
open field, exposed to meteorology, exposed to farmers' diseases, etc. This biotechnological operational line, manufacturing line with all these challenges. And if you compare an SME, a small and medium enterprise that has similar challenges as this guy has, but you know, even on a much lower scale, he will still have a lot more digital technology than the farmer has. So when we look at that, you know, and, and by digital technology, I mean by a farmer management system, I mean access to the internet in real time to be able to check prices, to be able to check events that are happening and make decisions in real time, right? So when, when we looked at this, first of all, it was very clear, but once he has the availability access to technology. Uh, And by availability, we mean that he can buy it at an affordable price that makes sense, that he can have usage to it in, you know, it's full splendor. So, you know, he needs to have connectivity access. And once he has the infrastructure in place that will allow him to be at the same level of of literacy, digital literacy from a perspective, then we thought that it was was no brainer. I mean, it was obvious that he was, to think that the farmer is, is a backwards conservative type because he lives in the countryside. And, you know, when you hear people saying this about the Brazilian farmer, it's a clear lack of understanding of what's going on in the Brazilian farming landscape. When you look at what's happening in the Brazilian landscape, you've been having more and more people leave uh, farmland and going to urban centers. And there's been less and less employment in the farming sector. And what we see is the farming sector has been paying more and more and more for people to work in farming, right? Uh, So we've been seeing less people, so less labor and more value add in terms of salaries. Uh, So when we see all these things, we see clearly there's a lot of change. The farmer is not a conservative, backwards uh, guy. He has simply been in a position until now that uh, he didn't have access to these technologies. But the moment that he has access to technologies that will make him more productive, more profitable, save him time to spend time with his family and do his, his leisurely things, and, and a lot of people used to say, no, this will happen, but it will happen in the succession. So when the farmer's son goes to the university and comes back to manage, in that succession, it will happen. BS, we're seeing the grandfather uh, become a heavy smartphone user. We're seeing the father become a very hardcore ambassador of new digital technologies. And the son, of course. And what's beautiful is these new technologies, they're bridging the gap between the grandfather, the father, and the son in the the family business of farm, where they have new and exciting topics to discuss. And we're seeing angel groups, investment angel groups focused on uh, ag tech in the countryside of Brazil start to form where the the grandfather, the father, the son, and together with their neighbors, they get together and they discuss startup investment in ag tech in Brazil. So this is the level of change that we're seeing. It's becoming transgenerational and even generational integrative uh, as, as, as a function. You know, it seems like up to this point, you've alluded to it. The big bottleneck has been connectivity, you know, getting this connectivity out to all places throughout the world in rural areas of Brazil or, or U.S. It doesn't matter where you are. So assuming that that problem gets solved and it, it's definitely gotten a lot better. And and so let's just kind of put it aside and say, OK, we've got that problem solved. What then becomes the next barrier in your mind to more widespread tech adoption of, um, you know, of farmers? Yeah. So it's a combination. I think that connectivity is critical. Smartphone penetration as we go into mobile is critical as well. And then once you have this, you start an avalanche of uh, digital transformation, such as farmers, they start to uh, consume entertainment, technology, communication with their neighbors. Uh, and, and if you look at what's happened in terms of WhatsApp usage and how much farmers in the region use WhatsApp for purchasing inputs, 
for exchanging ideas. I mean, what Farmers Business Network tries to do in the U.S. Uh, in terms of bringing transparency and uniting farmers, etc., this is something that WhatsApp alone, as farmers have used the technology to build groups within several of their different areas, we see that when technology is available and it's practical and it's UX friendly, uh, farmers adopt it and, and they go head first. The second point that we needed, uh, Tim, was an ecosystem of, of entrepreneurship and tech. It takes a while before it gets to a level of maturity where you have you know, volume. So th- there's one thing that people don't understand about startups, uh, first of all, and, and this was very critical about f- with farmers here. I mean, most, most startups don't succeed. Most startups never raise capital. Many startups raise capital and die and do not uh, take it all the way. So it's normal for you to have 10 companies all startups offering a specific type of satellite solution feature, and seven of these guys, eight of these guys to go belly up. This this is not abnormal. This is normal. And then what you have is a very successful Darwinian process of survival of the fittest where those two companies or three companies or one company that survive in that specific survives because it delivers the best service, it had the best team, and it managed to, to scale. And that will be the winner, which the market chooses. So I think over the past three or four years, looking at Brazil, what you had was connect Activity surged. You had a lot of ag tech activity. I mean, we wrote a paper on uh, ag funder maybe three years ago where we had 340 companies here in Brazil across the board, ag tech uh, startups. Now we probably have over a thousand. So there's volume and, and tackling problems across the board. And the quality of the entrepreneurs is getting better by the year. So now what we have is volume. Again, most of these companies will not be successful, but a good portion of them will be and will become winners and providers of technology. So I think that now we see a more mature ecosystem of founders, of technologies, of infrastructure. Uh, We start to see more investors. I mean, we were the first uh, venture firm to be actively investing in ag tech here in the region. Now we see guys like the, our colleagues from Yield Lab setting up shop in Argentina and then in Brazil. We have several mainstream venture firms in Brazil that have started to put ag as one of their important pillars. Uh, we start to see these angel groups being formed across the countryside by farmers with their sons and you know, grandsons and neighbors to co-invest in ag tech startups. We start to see many of the large institutions, banks, hardware companies, software companies, launch corporate venture funds in the region with ag as a core thesis. So now we have liquidity, we have capital, which is a necessary fuel. We have infrastructure. We have scale of founders and high quality startups uh, in, in the ecosystem. Now, I mean, I think it's a question of, of uh, time, but, you know, it's it's been planted. It's been seed. It's been fertilized. You know, all the ingredients are there. Now we just have to let the, the grain grow, let the plant grow. I have no doubt. I mean, you already have companies like the, the one we invested in Argentina, AgroFi, which it was, you know, already raised a Series B with very high-profile Silicon Valley-like ag tech investors, such as Acre VC, Fallline VC. Uh, we have local companies like Solinftech, which which raised uh, large rounds and are conquering the U.S. and showing that you can develop proprietary technology in tropical ecosystems that will conquer temperate uh, uh, ecosystems as well. So, I mean, uh, I think that when you talk about ag tech and agribusiness technology. Brazil will be and Latin America will be much more similar in terms of what it brings to the world as what China did when it launched uh, and it built out its BAT, you know, its its Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, and it created this this new technology, this new business model of vertical horizontal platforms, and you know, really innovated. Uh, I think that when you see uh, what we're going to do in Latin America in the agribusiness, what's going on already, it's going to be very similar. We're going to bring a lot of new 
interesting innovations uh, leapfrogging uh, across the world. The big difference between us and China is that you know China had 1.4, 1.5 billion people to scale, and two, China was actively protecting with uh, government sponsorships, government subsidies, and blocking out competitors. We're going to do it with you know free competition. Uh, of course, we have the help that our tropical ecosystem makes it harder for foreign companies to come here and launch their own ag tech solutions. But uh, we're not going to do it with any kind of uh, government support. It's going to be 100% led by our entrepreneurs. Very cool. And, you know, those thousand companies and building this ecosystem, the companies are still kind of trying to find this product market fit. And I'm sure for you in working with so many companies as you have, you've probably started to identify when companies are on the right track a little bit better than others. Is there any advice you could share for every entrepreneur out there who's trying to find true product market fit in ag tech? For sure. Uh, Some of these things are going to seem like cliches, but... (laughs) It's the truth and never, never lose grip. First of all, uh, the wisdom is not within. The wisdom is in the market. So listen to your client, listen to your farmers, listen to your value chain. That's where wisdom is coming from. Second, next point, test, test and test. So when I say wisdom is outside, it means you have to test, do a lot of A-B hypothesis testing, launch a product and a service, test price levels, test engagement, test channels, be always testing. You need to be able to get that wisdom outside and bring it into the company. And the only way to do that is to test, to run these tests. And with inside uh, sales and digital marketing and these other methodologies, it's extremely cheap and easy to do these things, right? So, Invest a lot in hearing what's going on outside and in doing your hypothesis testing A-B. Do not go and spend money and scale before you've done extensive of one and two. And consequently, you know that you have something that has a fit with with at least a a significant portion of the market and that you have positive unit economics. Well, we see a lot of things going on in in ag tech in in, in the US and even in Asia is since there's so much venture capital available, entrepreneurs just, you know, become, I don't want to say they become lazy, but they just become over anxious and pressured to start scaling and spending the the money, uh, scaling the business before they have have a product market fit and a unit economics that are healthy and sustainable. So what happens when you start to throw out money in those situations before you have these two? You waste a lot of money. You generate a lot of negative repercussions from your customers. There's nothing worse than uh, an angry farmer that's going to go and spread the evil against your, your company, telling everybody that it doesn't work. So the basics that we operating in a market that has a lot of lack of capital when you compare to Silicon Valley, when you compare to China, you know, it's very difficult to raise capital here. So we're very strict in making sure that once we invest, we've seen founders that have gone the way in terms of testing, uh, in terms of validating the markets, and that we know that we can put money and we can look at the use of proceeds and we can say, well, we're still going to be doing discovery all the time because we still need to, you know, launch new products, etc. But we can see that these guys are diligent. They don't, you know, uh, start spending millions of dollars on Facebook marketing, on Instagram marketing, on, on you know, LinkedIn marketing, uh, Google. AdWords before they know they have something to spend on and that generates positive cash flow. So 
It's, 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 it's the same advice that I think you're going to get from any other uh, responsible and experienced venture capitalist. But in ag tech, it's very true, especially in Brazil. And remember, besides having a more capital scarce region, which I think makes entrepreneurs here more efficient than most of the other regions, simply because they, they have less capital. So they have to make it last longer and go longer without it. But the next point is farming operates very different from other consumer technology sectors. They usually buy technologies. Farmers usually buy technologies on specific windows of opportunity of the year. Uh, so they buy planting technology on another window of the year. They buy seeding technology on another one. They have crop protection technology on another one. And when they buy this technology, then they focus on using it on that specific process. And you need to take him by the hand, make sure he uses the technology appropriately, make sure that he is able to isolate the other variables to so you can see what the positive or negative impact that technology had on his entire process in order to become a what we call a successful customer, a customer that will not churn, a customer that will preach the gospel of your company to all his neighbors, <clears throat> and you know, a customer that will give you even a video message that you can post on your site and on YouTube saying what a fantastic product you have built and how that has solved problems for him that guaranteed he has higher margins and he has spent more time with his family, which are the basic currencies the farmers want. They want to manage uncertainty and they want extra time to spend with their families. I, I'm loving this. I know I'm on time uh, here, but but just one last question. You mentioned those problems that a company is going to help solve and create such a loyal customer following. As you look out there, what problems do you see that you're hoping the next great entrepreneur in Brazil comes up out of nowhere and has a great solution for? The great thing about the region is our farmers are extraordinarily efficient inside the farms. I mean, what they can produce in terms of uh, bags of soybean and productivity is, is impressive. And what they've been able to do, bags of soybean per hectare over the past uh, few decades, the increase has been fantastic. And there are still a lot of challenges to solve within the farm in crop protection, in planting, fertilizer, uh, variable rate fertilizer application, uh, smarter weather forecasting. There's a lot of people tackling these problems, but we can always take it another step. But I think there's a huge ocean of opportunities, which is really where our agribusiness gives back a lot of our efficiency and productivity once you leave the gates of the farm until you get that product out on a vessel to feed China, to feed India, to feed Europe and other, other uh, markets. And this is logistics optimization. And the logistics optimization is going for a very special moment. I mean, more than 70% of our uh, agricultural produce is transported by trucks, which is very inefficient. Right now, we're starting to build and to develop the capabilities for multimodal, so uh, railways, riverways, you know, things that the U.S. has gotten right for a century in terms of using the Mississippi, the Missouri, using these uh, cross-Atlantic and, and Pacific railways, uh, getting down to NOLA, to New Orleans and Louisiana. Uh, these are things that right now it's building out in Brazil, the capabilities. So there's a lot of uncertainty on where should I do, how should I do it, how do I optimize? So the logistics challenge, there's a big you know, opportunity to meet the big infrastructure challenge, which is being met right now and will continue to be met over the next few years and the digital technologies to really bring efficiency and optimization to this new farm. So logistics technologies, we see a lot of opportunities over here. Uh, the second one, which we have a highly inefficient industry, uh, almost a non-existent, let's say, from a perspective of, uh, of a trophy, uh, is the financial services industry for exclusively for agribusiness. So this, I mean, credit, and this, I mean, 
insurance. There are a few reasons why our financial services industry did not develop for agriculture. There's always been distortions caused by some subsidized government funding, which was small, but it was large enough to be able to distort the market and to kill the rise of a private sector. There was a lot of regulatory uh, asphyxiation of innovation. So in order to issue an agricultural debt, you needed to register it to paper notaries, and it was long, expensive, and bureaucratic. There was no digital penetration, so it was very difficult for you to monitor guarantees, for you to source a farmer, price the risk of that farmer, evaluate if he was a good farmer over the past few years, and to be able to make an informed financial services decision in terms of risk management to be able to get him a product. You know, uh, And what we've seen over the past uh, three years is that this has completely changed. So we start to have regulatory innovation from the central bank to be able to facilitate and dematerialize the paper trail behind issuing uh, agricultural debt. So it becomes digital. Second, digital transformation is hitting hard uh, farmers. So we start to see farmers that are completely integrated with suppliers, uh, with their end customers, as they have a cloud-based FMS, they can integrate through APIs. It becomes very easy. Their data flows. So it's much easier to identify if he's a good farmer, if he's buying the right stuff, and to monitor his guarantees. So it's easier for financial agents to register and monitor that. So we have the perfect storm to build a very sophisticated, modern, tech-driven financial services industry for what is the second largest uh, ag producer in the world and probably the largest ag exporter in the world. So it's big numbers. Uh, When you get these two things with what's already going inside the farm, what you see at the end is a lot more value chain, supply chain integration. And when you have this kind of integration, it becomes a very ripe moment for you to have disintermediation. And I think these are going to be the big changes and, and entrepreneurial uh, fervors of the coming years. We're going to see a lot of fintech frag activity. We're going to see a lot of e-commerce frag. Uh, we're going to see a lot of logistics tech frag. And as these three start to work together and mingle and integrate and fuse, uh, we're going to see a lot of disintermediation. And hopefully we're going to have more margins and more cost control and more intermediary margin appropriation to the farmers who, let's be honest, the farmers are the guys who really carry the the piano, as we say here in Brazil. They run the risk. They are guys who do the hard work. And right now, they leave most of the margins of the value chain with the trading companies, with the industries, with the end consumer brand products, such as Starbucks in the case of coffee. And and this is is not, I mean, this is capitalism. This has worked out and technology has uh, the, hopefully, the democratization power to be able to transfer margins back to where they belong. Love it. Francisco, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for staying a little late too. Do you all invest in startups outside of Brazil or only inside of Brazil? And and should we have people reach out to you? No. So we, we've always invested in Brazil. We started investing in Argentina as of uh, two years ago, which is definitely not for the faint at heart. <laughs> we thought that doing venture capital in Brazil was a high thrills, high adrenaline business. Well, Argentina, you can raise that to the to the cube, but it's a lot of fun. And Argentine entrepreneurs are fantastic. I mean, for you to survive in that ecosystem, you got to be you know really resilient, Highlander. So we started investing in Argentina two years ago, and we just closed the fund, which are going to be announced in the coming weeks, which is going to be investing throughout Latin America. So. 
What we pitch ourselves, Tim, to our, our customers who are the entrepreneurs is we are the best venture choice for your cap table if you aim to reinvent the agri-value chain in Latin America. Any any entrepreneur, uh, he can be Israeli, American, as long as he plans on starting a business, is going to have all or primary or a strong element of its business in Latin America. And you're going to have operations in Latin America. And we can be of service here to you besides capital, also for our intellectual uh, assets. Please do seek us out. Great. Thank you so much, Francisco. I, I love this. And uh, so I, I really appreciate your time and would love to get you back on the show again uh, sometime in the future. Tim, thank you. It's been an honor. Uh, big fan of your podcast. Thanks so much again to Francisco Hardim for being on the show. Really enjoyed that. Whether you're in Brazil or anywhere around the world, there were some really great insights in there about the future of agriculture, specifically ag tech and for startups. Special shout out as well to Guillerme Raucci from AgroSmart for making the intro so that this episode can happen. Guillerme, thank you, and I hope I pronounced your name right. We're nearing the end of 2020 here, and I am planning my 2021 content. So do you have any suggestions for topics that should be explored on this show? I welcome them via Twitter. I'm at Tim Hammerich, or email them to tim at aggrad.com. For all of you out there trying to think of more innovative ways to keep the world fed, fueled, flowered, and forested, thanks so much today for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly, and I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Music.